Welcome to part five of Five Millennia Jewish History, the fifth and final installment. Part five is called Chaos, Cataclysm, and Consolidation. So our our story starts uh, in the aftermath of the expulsion from Spain and Portugal. As we mentioned last time, a quarter of a million Jews left Spain, while about the same number remained. And many, if not most, of those that remained tried to practice Judaism in secret. These were called the Muranos. And they had a brief heyday in Spain, but unfortunately, within about 60 years, they were all gone. Uh, Firstly, they were persecuted very fiercely by the Inquisition. Secondly, Judaism is very difficult to keep in secret, and certainly it's very difficult to perpetuate to future generations. So those that were uh, masquerading as Christians ended up integrating and becoming Christians um, completely. Many historians and social scientists are, are... estimate that almost everyone in Spain today has some degree of Jewish blood. And it's interesting to note this miscalculation of the Moranos. They made a very clever calculation that we'll stay here, we'll make believe like we're Christians, externally we'll, we'll practice Judaism with, you know, within the confines of our homes in secrecy, and then we'll be able to have everything. And while it made total sense... The Torah is non-negotiable. The Torah is immutable. The Torah says when someone tells you your religion, your Judaism, or your life, you have to choose your religion. And they were trying to be clever and trying to find a way out, and indeed they're gone. And indeed in our story, in the modern times, in the modern era, we'll find Jewish movements that made similarly disastrous calculations where they thought they could really have everything or could be very clever and try to gain it all, and indeed they failed. Amongst those that left Spain was a young three-year-old child who fled with his family, first stopping initially in Egypt and ultimately settling in Sfat in northern Israel. This young child would grow up to be one of the most significant and transformative Jews of his time and be the catalyst of the next great development of Torah. And we're talking about, of course, the great Rabbi Joseph Cairo. He was a genius and scholar of superlative proportions. His literary and halachic works were unmatched in their influence. Now, he initially started writing a book called the Kesef Mishnah. It's a comprehensive commentary on all of Rambam. Rambam's book, 14 books, called Mishnah Torah, Repetition of Torah. So his title is Kesef Mishnah, which means double your money. It's a reference to what happened with Joseph and his brothers. He gave them twice their money. And what he does, he provides tremendous analysis and debate and scholarship on the Rambam, but also adds sources where there's no sources. You remember the Rambam wrote it without sources. He adds the sources when uh, when no other uh, commentaries do. After that, he undertook the task... that would shape Jewish life for all those that came after him. Now, in the last episode, we talked about um, the Rishonim and the investments that they made to try to codify and clarify the Oral Torah. But there was a problem. The Rishonim, the period from about 1,000 to the year 1500, the Rambam, the Rif, the Rush, all the names that we spoke about last time, they were the last generation, the last period that claimed unbroken tradition, uninterrupted tradition of oral Torah. The Rambam writes about himself, he got from his te- father, who got from his teacher, who got from the Rif, all the way back to the Gonim and back to Moses. That period was, would end. Therefore, they invested all the time and effort to codify and write down the Torah and the Halacha in a, in a finalized format. Now, ironically, paradoxically, it made it a little bit harder 
to observe halacha because now you don't have one finalized word of halacha. You have the riffs, you have the rambams, you have the rushes, you have the orzeruas, you have the, all the commentaries and all the responses of all the rishonim, uh, uh, plus the tour, the 22-volume edition. And that, where do you start? And how does someone in modern times determine that, oh, I'm going to follow the Rambam here, I'm going to follow the Rush here. Which one do you do? How, do you, how, how could you make choices between these giants? So Rabbi Joseph Kyra developed a system based upon the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin would have the debates of all the great leaders of the Sanhedrin. Well, how do you choose? They're all great. You do, you follow the rule of majority rules. So he took the three most prominent opinions of the Rishonim that, that create the fabric of Halacha, the Rif, Rabbi Al-Fasi, the Ramam, of course, and the Rosh, and he followed the principle of majority rules. In every Halacha, he would take these three opinions and would find the, you know, if it was unanimous, great, uh, but he would find the, uh, the majority of these three Rishonim and that he would finalize in Halacha. Now he initially wrote a very monumental work called the Bet Yosef, which is in fact his nickname, one of his nicknames. Uh, he's also called Maran, our leader. This took him 32 years, it's 22 volumes, and this is a commentary on the tour. And incidentally, he became the first author in the form of the Bet Yosef, who had his work printed in the printing press in his own lifetime. Now, in that book, he took every issue of halacha and started from the Gemara, went to the Shonen, went to all the opinions, went all the responses, and wrote. It's an incredibly vast and exhaustive commentary. And at the end of every section, he says, okay, this is the halacha. And he, clar- and he whittles it down to practical halacha. And then he wrote a synopsis of that that became what's called the Shulchan Aruch, the set table, which has just the conclusions that he pulled out of his Bet Yosef. It's kind of like a shortened, synopsized version uh, that would be supplementary to the book. Of course, in the end, most people just opted to go for the shorter book, the Shulchan Aruch, uh, but the scholars still study both. Now, what's interesting is that concurrently, he's in Svat in northern Israel, in Krakow, in Poland, the rabbi of the city, Rabbi Moshe Israelis, began the same project. And you see kind of an era shift. We had the Rishonim, the primary works of halacha written by the Rishonim, and now we see, okay, there's so many Rishonim, how do we clarify halacha out of this vast corpus of halacha that we have for us? How do we whittle it down? So he started the same project. So concurrently, in different areas of the world, two of the greatest scholars of all Jewish history are working on the same project. Rabbi Karo finishes first, he publishes it, it takes off like wildfire throughout the world. And Rabbi Isselis in Krakow, he gets in his local Jewish bookstore, he sees a printed version of the Bet Yosef, and he sees, ah, this guy did it, and he did it not only that, in such a way that it would be even better than what he had initially set out to do. So what he determined to do was to write not a, a, a primary work, but rather a supplementary work that would go alongside the Bet Yosef and the Shulchan Aruch of Rabbi Cairo. And parallel to that, we have the Darke Moshe, which is also a commentary on the tour that parallels the Bet Yosef. And of course, the glosses that he inserted into the Shulchan Aruch that accompany the primary Shulchan Aruch with the glosses of the, of the, the Ramah, Rabbi Moshe Israelis. Whereas the Shulchan Aruch is named for a set table because you want to approach halacha and you have the meal, the meal set out before you. Just come and take what you want. You, you, you want your hors d'oeuvres, you want your entrees. You just, it's all set there. It's all ready for you to take. 
that's the set table of the Shulchan Aruch, comes along Rabbi Moshe Isler's and he says, mine's called the Mapa. Mapa is the tablecloth. It's the accompaniment to this festive meal of halacha that is orchestrated by the Shulchan Aruch. Now, what's interesting, he also developed a, an opinion to whittle down the opinions of the Rishonim, but he, instead of using the, the, the uh, approach of majority rules, he followed the, uh, he gave priority to the opinions that came later. In the, the Gemara uses this, where the later opinions, because they have a grander scope of more information, therefore their opinions are held in higher regard. And therefore he didn't use the Rambam, the Rif, and the, and the Rush as the primary sources who were actually all earlier. He used the laters, the later opinions, uh, which were primarily Ashkenazi, like the Marami Rottenberg and the Orzerua, like we mentioned last time, and he followed their opinions uh, when in doubt. So ironically, the Ashkenazic Rabbi Isserles follow the Ashkenazi Rishonim and that's Ashkenazic Halacha, whereas the Sephardic Rabbi Karo followed the Sephardic Rishonim because two out of the three of his model were Sephardic, and, and he followed the majority of the Rif and the Rambam and the Rosh. Now this effort, this monumental undertaking essentially became the baseline and the centerpiece of all of Jewish law. Within a very short time, it was accepted by all of the Jewish communities, and indeed books and supplementary books were all written on top of the Shulchan Aruch, but from that point, hence, thenceforth, that became the final word in halacha that was accepted by all Jews. Now, in the city of Tzvat wasn't only a bastion of halacha and that form of scholarship. It had all different kinds of great Jewish leaders at the time. It was a tremendous renaissance of scholarship and greatness in that city. And a particular kind of scholarship was popularized at that time, and that is Kabbalah. Now, Kabbalah and the mystical aspects of Judaism and the Zohar, of course, have been part and parcel of Jewish life and scholarship and thought for 1,500 years. But the problem was is that the, that the Zohar and Kabbalah, they were sealed books. People didn't understand what the lessons were contained. So the Tzfat Kabbalah, primarily Rabbi Isaac Luria, known to us as the Arizal, he undertook the effort to try to explain uh, the Zohar and, and Kabbalah in a way that made it palatable and acceptable and accessible to the masses. He developed a new lingo that we're very familiar with, like Halbasha and Tzimtzum, the Almighty, who uh, limiting himself, picking up the sparks, taking the broken vessels and putting back together, talking, of course, with a tremendous emphasis on Messiah, Mashiach, and redemption. Now, the Arizal died very young. He, died, he was only 38 when he died. And he only taught his ideas of Kabbalah to a very small circle of scholars for a little more than two years. After he died... Uh, his primary student, Rabbi Chaim Vital, wrote down all his books, the Kisve Arizal, the, the complete writings of the Arizal, is like 45 volumes nowadays. Uh, and initially it began to be a very modest movement. It was only relegated to the scholars uh, and the hierarchy of, of, of leadership, but eventually over the time it disseminated throughout the entire world and it became a very dominant force in Jewish philosophy and scholarship. We can say that the Hasidic movement that is going to develop a couple of hundred years later is primarily built on the Kabbalistic ideas of the Ari. As in all times in Jewish history, the Jews of that time were subject to relentless hostility and anti-Semitism and pogroms, 
But few pogroms and massacres had the same scale and brutality as the Chmelnitsky massacres of 1648 and 1649. Chmelnitsky, he was a Ukrainian who organized revolts against the Polish landowners and nobility, and they rampaged their way through Poland and Ukraine and Lithuania, and along the way they slaughtered Jewish communities wherever they met. Not only that, they encouraged the, the Poles trying to curry favor in the rampaging masses of Cossacks, of Ukrainian Cossacks, they too turned them over to Chmelnitsky. And this is an episode of unmatched cruelty. The Jews were very, very fast, tortured to death in ways that are so gruesome we can't even describe them, even though we will. They were drowned in rivers. They were butchered with knives. Pregnant women had their fetuses cut out. Uh, from them. Children were roasted alive and fed to the parents who were then killed. Un- unmatched brutality. People were skinned alive. People hoarded into shuls and burnt. Really, really terrible. Within six months, more than 100,000 Jews, roughly a third of worldwide Jewish population at the time, was destroyed and hundreds of communities were ravaged. Chmelnitsky remains a national hero in Ukraine for freeing Ukraine from Polish nobility. There's a monument, of course, in Kiev in his face. The face of a terrible villain adorns Ukrainian money, which, of course, isn't worth so much today. You know, I was thinking when the Russians occupied Crimea, I really felt like they they had it coming. They really deserved everything they got and a lot more. But, of course, in the aftermath of this tremendous tragedy, and really in the aftermath of every national tragedy, there's always going to be a spiritual rebirth. People are pining for redemption. People are hoping for salvation. People are yearning for better times. But that, of course, opens the door for charlatans and snake oil salesmen that try to dupe the masses into following them and and into buying into their schemes. A decade after the Chmelnitsky massacres, one of the worst charlatans in all of Jewish history arose initially in Turkey and then throughout the Jewish world, and that is the accursed Shabtai Tzvi. Shabtai Tzvi was a brilliant student and scholar, someone who was also very eccentric as well, but at a very young age was noted for being a great scholar. He received smicha, became a chacham as a teenager, and he began to learn Kabbalah on his own and to exhibit very bizarre behavior that not only was strange, in a vacuum, but it was also anti-Torah. So, for example, he engaged in self-flagellation. He would go fr- frequent trips to the mikvah. He was an ascetic. He would institute all these personal fasts all the time. But he also displayed uh, behaviorisms of someone suffering from mental illness. He claimed to have dreams and visions. Uh, he married multiple times and divorced without consummating his marriage. By the time he was 24, he was already married and divorced twice. He began to declare the ineffable tetragram, the name of God that we're not allowed to pronounce publicly. He would violate the Torah and justify it. He acted very bizarrely, marrying a Sefer Torah. He celebrated all three regalim, Pesach, Sukkot, and Shavuos within one week. He ate non-kosher, proclaiming the blessing of Matir Asurim, that the Almighty permits that, that, that is prohibited. He uh, ultimately married a woman by the name of Sarah, who was by all accounts a prostitute. Uh, 
Uh, he swung from asceticism to tremendous nihilism. He engaged in orgies. A really crazy guy who would violate the Torah willy-nilly. He read different portions of the Torah than the appropriate ones. He slaughtered a Korban Pesach and roasted it in its fat. These are all prohibited by the Torah. And the majority of the people, of course, saw him for what he was, a nutcase and a charlatan. But a small group of followers viewed his craziness and eccentricities as proof of his greatness. He was excommunicated and kicked out of his town and sent into exile multiple times. He came back and was kicked out again. And he began to travel throughout the world. He went to to Greece and Turkey, and eventually he ended up in Israel. And in the city of Gaza, he met someone by the name of Nathan, Natan of Gaza, who was a healer, and he essentially went to him to try to heal himself from his craziness. And he gets to Natan of Gaza, who tells him, oh, by the way, you're the Mashiach. And he convinced him that he's the Mashiach. They started traveling the land of Israel together. They began a triumphant tour of the Jewish world. They encircled Jerusalem seven times, sending letters throughout the Jewish world of the arrival of Messiah. They started in messianic fashion to abolish fast days. And of course, the Jewish world was in an absolute frenzy. Of course, this was aided by false rumors that uh, were churned throughout the Jewish world, that he captured Mecca, he captured Arabia, he found the ten lost tribes. They displayed him as some sort of, you know, just otherworldly, hyperbolic figure. And people throughout the world over began to prepare. This was the real deal. And, of course, they were vulnerable because they just suffered tremendous calamities unseen uh, for, for centuries prior. They were primed, and really they were hoping and yearning for somebody to help them out of their misery, and they found the right guy in Shabtai Tzvi. People began selling their homes, selling their businesses, preparing to accept the new king and to move to Israel. But of course, there was division amongst the community. The rabbis, primarily a lot of rabbis, saw him for what he was, a fake and a charlatan. Some rabbis, of course, were taken by him. He was a very tantalizing figure. He was a very impressive figure as well. He was a great Torah scholar, very charismatic and they bought into his nonsense. The Jewish community was divided, uh, and things were reaching a fever pitch when Shabtai Tzvi ultimately called for the conquest of Israel and the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the Ottoman Empire and the Sultan that was very hospitable to Shabtai Tzvi's eccentricities. That was you know, a, a step too far, and he had him arrested and imprisoned. Ultimately, the sultan forced Shabtai Tzvi to choose between conversion to Islam or execution, and the dreams and the hopes of all the masses came to a crashing end and conclusion when Shabtai Tzvi opted to convert to Islam. He adopted the name Aziz Mehmed Effendi, and he lived out the rest of his life in Turkey. And of course, revulsion and disappointment swept the Jewish world. The majority of his followers disavowed him, tried to rebuild and put together and piece back their lives. Unfortunately, a strong majority clung to him and they said, oh, that's all part of his plan. Every one of his apostasies, they rationalized. Indeed, they even wrote books to explain why he had to convert to Islam. That was all part of the the plan. Of course, that's insane. Now, the aftermath of this debacle reverberates essentially until today. Um, There was a movement, the Sabbatean movement, that continued for about a century afterwards. The people that were still Sabbateans, followers of Shabtai Tzvi, 
um, for another century, but because Shabtai Tzvi was so steeped and immersed in Kabbalah, from then on, Kabbalah was viewed very suspiciously, especially young scholars who were brilliant and charismatic and involved in Kabbalah were treated very, very warily. And innovators, innovators of all types, uh, even good and positive innovations are not going to be accepted very easily. And the movement almost went underground, and even great people were accused of being secret Shab- Sabbateans. Indeed, a, th- a hundred years later, a dispute engulfed the entire Jewish world when one of the leading sages of the world, uh, Rabbi Yaakov Emden, accused another leading sage, Rabbi Yonason Eibeshitz, of being a secret Sabbatean, and the whole world was in an uproar. This is a hundred years later. One of the people that suffered in the aftermath of, of, of these recriminations against the Sabbateans was a great style by the name of Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lusato, known to us as the Ramchal. He lived a very short life. He was a great genius, but he also studied Kabbalah and claimed accurately that he actually had heavenly communications. At a very young age, he wrote the Messiah, Hashem, the Path of the Just. It's the stages of the spiritual ascent. Essentially, he'll tell you, guide you from being a novice to being someone who's capable of prophecy or a lower degree of prophecy. He wrote many, many books, I think even hundreds of, of, of different books. Derech Hashem, the famous foundational work of Jewish philosophy, the way of God, Das Tfunas, amongst many, many others. He was accused of being a secret Sabbatean, and he had to flee Israel he fled to Israel. He was living in Italy at the time. Fled to Israel, uh, and he died in a plague with his young family at the age of 40. Now, it's a commonly accepted position of some people that uh, he's actually buried right next to the Rabbi Akiva. In, you know, Rabbi Akiva lived 1,700 years prior, uh, 1,600 years prior, to be precise. Uh, it's a common saying of people that Rabbi Akiva's soul was reincarnated into the Ramchal soul because Rabbi Tiva spent the first 40 years of his life as an ignorant who, who, ignoramus who didn't study Torah, and thus there was something lacking in his spiritual profile, and that was completed by his soul uh, re-inhabiting the body of the Ramchal, who lived almost exactly 40 years, steeped in Torah from beginning to end, and thus they're buried next to each other. But this kind of idea is an example of the kind of Kabbalistic thought that became prominent at the time. Now, the Jewish communities of really the world uh, had a major demographic problem. Judaism had always been the religion of the scholar. We've always been the people of the book. Torah has been the essential foundation and fabric of our societies and our culture. Uh, but what about the common folk? What about the people that didn't have the time or the effort or the capability or the uh, uh, wherewithal to become great Torah scholars, they were a little bit forgotten. Many people were forced to go into the labor force, weren't able to continue their Torah studies. What's going to be with their connection to God and Torah? Hasidus is a movement that was developed at this time to address this problem. Now, this movement was wildly successful and indeed can be credited with saving a large faction of the Jewish nation. It was founded by Rabbi Yisrael ben Eliezer, known to us, of course, as the Baal Shem Tov. He was orphaned at a young age. The beginning of his life, he lived in relatively unknown and unheralded situations, in isolation, prayer, with a small group of followers. In his mid-30s, he revealed himself to the world and began preaching and teaching his brand of Torah. Now, his brand of Torah was a shift from the accepted principles of Torah. Torah was always viewed as Torah being Torah number one. 
Everything else is tertiary. He de-emphasized Torah, but brought to prominence other aspects of Jewish life that are more palatable to the masses. So, for example, prayer. Prayer is, you know, it was an underutilized resource. It's man talking to God. It's a special relationship that we can bind ourselves with the Almighty. He instead refocused the energy of the Jews there. Well, if someone who's not a great Torah scholar, they could still become great in their relationship with God via their prayer. Uh, and also he emphasized all Judaism has to be joyous. Don't be so, you know, the, the, the whole notion of, of the scholar in, you know, surrounded by dusty books and studying with a frown in his face, that went, out, that, that, that went out of vogue in the Hasidic world. It has to be joyous, we have to be singing, we have to be dancing, we have to get together when it's cold outside and drink some l'chaim, have a fabrengen, let's eat some potato kodro and filter fish together, let's tell stories, let's bring the spark and the joy back into Judaism. And indeed, they were successful in ways that are unimaginable. Part of that, of course, is where the Hasidic community centers around the Rebbe. The Rebbe is almost viewed as an intermediary between them and God. He's a great tzaddik, he's the scholar, and he's the one who can kind of help the, the, the masses who are mostly peasants, unlearned people, people, regular people. They can, he could be their link, so to speak, to God. They tried to make Judaism communal. Everyone came together. Everyone was part of a community, and that kept Jews Jewish. If you were part of a tightly knit Jewish community, Hasidic community, you may have been tantalized by the Enlightenment. You maybe have wanted to go to university or want to engage in other pursuits that were antithetical to Torah. But you know what? You look like a Hasidic Jew, you have a good beard, you got your pace, you got your clothing, you're going to shave that off, what's all your friends, what are all your friends going to think, what's Moshe and Yanko, all your friends, what are they going to think about you, they're going to be so disappointed, it kept them involved, that's of course the idea behind the distinctive garb, and the dialect, and, and, and Yiddish was maintained, because it, we wanted to culturally keep Jews Jewish, now, um, we're going to see very soon that there's going to be a lot of trying times for the Jews that are going to be shortly upcoming. And the Hasidim were very well positioned to respond to those trying times. After the death of the Baal Shem Tov, his disciple, Rabbi Dov Ber, known as the Magid of Mezrich, uh, he became the leader of, his, of, of the movement. And under his leadership, the movement really exploded and conquered much of the Jewish world. His students are the great leaders and visionaries who founded their own Hasidic dynasties. Just some of them, Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev, Rabbi Aaron of Karlin, the two famous brothers, Rabbi Zusha of Anapoli, Rabbi Elimelech of Legents. Each one of these is a great Hasidic leader and master. And of course, Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi, who was the founder of the Lubavitch movement and author of the classic book of Hasidic thought, the Tanya, and he also updated the Shulchan Aruch to include their customs. Now here is where uh, a bifurcation uh, that caused a lot of challenge happened. Parallel to the rise of Hasidus in Europe, who de-emphasized Torah, we meet also a Torah giant who valued only Torah, and that is Rabbi Elijah Kramer of Vilna, known to all as the Gaon, the genius of Vilna. Not since the times of the Gaonim, 800 years prior, had anyone been known by the honorific of Gaon, and indeed that became his moniker, his title. When you say the word Gaon, you're referring to Rabbi Elijah of 
Vilna. He was an otherworldly genius in proportions that are unimaginable to us. He was a Torah scholar unmatched by anyone at, at you know, at hyperbolic ages. He's six years old. He finishes all of Talmud with all the commentaries. He's eight. He gives his first public lecture. And he became a scholar and a leader that was incredibly influential, perhaps the most influential of his time and, and since. He was the leader of the Jews, despite the fact that he actually held no official post. He wrote uh, many, many, many books. Uh, the most famous, perhaps, is his commentary on Shulchan Aruch. Like we said, all halachic works since the Shulchan Aruch are based upon that framework. He traveled the entire world He on a self-imposed exile. And the reasonings behind that are disputed. The most commonly held belief was that he was traveling to all the universities that had archives of ancient Jewish texts, and he was trying to to whittle all the mistakes out of the Talmud and to give us the authoritative version of the of the text of the Talmud. Indeed, and if you look at every Talmud page, you'll see on the side Hagos Hagra, the commentary, not the commentary, the the emendations of the Gra of the of the Goan of Vilna that gives us the authoritative text of the Talmud. His now, his student, Rabbi Chaim Volazhner, he wrote a response to the Hasidim. So we have these two worlds. We have the Hasidic world that's slightly de-emphasizing Torah, and we have the Gona Vilna and his cadre of students that are focusing exclusively on Torah. And thus, when the Lubavitcher Rebbe writes the work of Hasidic thought, the the, 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 the finalized, codified version of what the Hasidim believe, the Gra instructs his student to write a response, and that, of course, is the classic Nefesh Chaim, a book essentially on the primacy of Torah study and the role of the individual, where we could discount. You don't need to have a, uh, a Rebbe. You don't, have to have a, have, you don't need to have an intermediary. Every Jew is allowed, and every Jew is mandated to study Torah and connect to God on his own. As such, we find the battles between the Hasidim and what became known as the Misnagdim, which means those that rejected Hasidus. From the beginning of the Hasidic movement, the opposition was very strong and even justified. They took some liberties with regards to some halacha, primarily about the time of prayer. We know that there's a very rigid system of when you're supposed to pay shachos, when mincha, and when mairif. To them, it's about connecting to God. You know, if I'm not ready, if I'm not in the mood, if I'm not in the spirit of prayer and connecting to God, I'll wait. Well, what if the time to daven is coming? That doesn't matter as much. Uh, and there's a good argument to be, to, you know, for that, but that was very controversial and still is today. Uh, they studied Kabbalah extensively, and like we said, studying Kabbalah became very suspect at the time. They tampered with the finalized version of the Siddur of the prayer. They added all the Kabbalistic ideas of the Arizal into the prayer book that had been set for you know, 2,000 years prior. And, of course, they started their own shuls, so they left, they, kind of, they, they made splits amongst communities. They played with the knives of shechita, of, of kosher slaughtering, and these things were not accepted uh, very easily by the misnardim, by the opponents. So decrees of excommunication were issued against the Hasidim. They said, oh, they call them the Hasidim, the pious ones. They're not Hasidim, they're Hashudim. They're the ones you should suspect. 
And in response, the Hasidim issued counter decrees of excommunication. Books were publicly burned. Both sides informed them on each other to the Russian government, and there was even, unfortunately, occasional violence. The Lubavitcher Rebbe, the first Rebbe Shner Zalman, he tried to reconcile and to talk to the Gorn of Vilna, but he refused to have an audience with them. Now, on Cholomoed Sukkot, on the holiday of Sukkot, the Gorn of Vilna died in 1797, and the local Hasidic community were dancing. Now, why were they dancing? That was a matter of dispute. The Hasidim claimed that they were dancing because it's the holiday of Sukkot. That's what you do in Sukkot. You, you get together and you have a simple space of and you dance. The Misnadim claimed that they were dancing because the Gon, their opponent, so to speak, in their mind, had died. And thus, the Rabbinic Council of Vilna that was controlled by the Misnadim began to persecute the Hasidim as a result. They responded and they informed to the, to the Russian, the imperial Russian government, against the council, and the council was disbanded, and the powers were curtailed, and they were replaced with a Hasidic one, when they, you know, they, they had a vote, but the vote was rigged, and the, eventually the Hasidim took over Vilna, and things really escalated very sadly that when the Misnagidic community, when they told the Russian government that the that the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the, the, the founder of the Lubavitch movement, was engaging in currency manipulations and supporting the enemies by sending charity to the Jews in Israel, because after all, the Ottoman Empire was an enemy of the Russians, and therefore he was sending charity to Israel, but they said, oh, he's sending currency to foreign countries, and he was imprisoned and incarcerated on suspicion of treason for 50 Three days. The day that he was released, when he was freed of all charges, is until this day celebrated by Chabad Hasidim. And of course, the acrimony continued on and on. An interesting note about this is that the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Tzemach Tzedek, he said that the Gon of Vilna, he actually saved Hasidism because they had to respond to his claims. And he was making claims. What's going on? There's repudiation of halacha. What's, and they had to respond, and that kept them in the fold. Had there not been an opposition uh, to the Hasidism, it's very likely that they would have gone beyond the pale of halachic Judaism. And of course, later generations, there would be reconciliation between these two groups, what's known as the Litvaks, or Lithuanians, the, you know, the, 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 the Jews who look as the Gon of Vilna as their leader and the Hasidim, there still exists a little bit of an undercurrent till this day. Now, at this time, Poland was dismantled and swallowed up by the imperial Russia. Now, um, it's superfluous for us to try to say that at every point in our history, there has been a certain degree of anti-Semitism and pogroms and We've demonstrated that. Uh, But at this time, there's going to be 150 years where the world's largest ghetto was established in Lithuania and Western Western Russia. It's known as the Pale of Settlement. The the Russians told the Jews, unless you want to convert to Russian Orthodoxy, the state religion, you're going to be forced to live in this place. If you don't live in there, you'll have to be uprooted and moved into the Pale. About 100 thousand Jews were uprooted and were forced to become refugees. And even within the Pale, which is an enormous ghetto, the Jews were not allowed to live in cities, thus the rise of small little towns that we know as shtetls. 
this stunted the Jews economically because they couldn't be involved in uh, in commerce in big cities. But uh, you know, and also the concentration of Jews in the Pale allowed them to be easy targets for pogroms. But the Jews flourished spiritually. At this time, we find the rise of the modern yeshiva world and the founding of the mother of all yeshivos by Rabbi Chaim Volozhner, the aforementioned student, primary disciple of the Goan of Vilna. Now, yeshivas, as we mentioned last time, have always existed. In Volozhner, they establish a new revolutionary type of yeshiva. Now, previously, the way it worked is that all Jewish boys were sent to Cheder. Cheder is kind of like uh, elementary school, where they would study Torah under a local melamed, a local teacher, until around bar mitzvah. Those that were particularly gifted, the prodigious students, they would continue studying with a local rabbi. Every community had a rabbi, and part of the rabbi's responsibilities were to study with the more capable, prodigious students. The absolute studs, the best students, they would be sent to other cities to learn with the famous rabbis and scholars and Torah leaders and giants of the time, spend some years under their tutelage, and become rabbis of their own. That was the yeshiva world until the modern yeshiva world took root in Volazhin. The modern yeshiva world is a central place of learning where all the best and brightest of scholars throughout all the Jewish communities in Europe would converge upon, and, and it would be a focused location of Torah greatness and Torah scholarship. It was, instead of Jews learning each in their own shtibel, in their own little shul, in their own little corner of Europe, everyone came together in a communal atmosphere of Torah scholarship, where there's live and loud and intense and joyous debate that you can actually still see today uh, as a hallmark in yeshiva world today, that was the idea behind Volazhin. Now, the average student of Volazhin studied 18 hours a day. That was average. It was common for people to study 36 hours straight and then sleep for 10 hours. 30, you know, they, would, they, would, they would study for 36 hours straight and then, and then sleep. They had a system where at every point in time, 24, 7, 365, there was someone studying Torah. There was never a time where there was, there, there was no one studying. In fact, their rationale for that was Torah is keeping the world alive, keeping the Jewish people alive. And therefore, we're, you know, we're the mother of all yeshivas. This is the epicenter of the Torah world. We're going to make sure that we're never going to have the flame of Torah will never cease in, uh, in, in Volazhin. In fact... Cool story. Their Rosh Hashiva, one of the Rosh Hashivas over the hundred years of Volazhin's reign was the famous Nitziv, Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, who perhaps we've heard of his sons. His one son became, uh, is known to us as Chaim Berlin. Another son to us is known as Rabbi Meir Barilan, the founder of the Mizrahi movement. He was the Rosh Hashiva, the head of the Yeshiva in Volazhin. So he was once his birthday. And the students came to him and they said to him, well, what do you want as a gift for your birthday? So he said, I want, I want Shas. Shas, I want Talmud. Say to him, Talmud, what do you mean? The whole, every bookshelf is full of Talmud. What do you want Talmud? He says, no, 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 no. I want the entire yeshiva to study Talmud by tomorrow. So a few hundred students, they divvied up the entire Talmud. They studied throughout the whole night. And the next day they delivered him what he wanted. The entire Shas was studied for his birthday. Now this spawned a movement 
that exploded in popularity, where yeshivas of this variety, of this model, sprouted up in every community in Europe, and of course has since moved to the United States and Israel. Now, elsewhere in the world, revolutions were brewing. The French Revolution, with the themes of liberty and equality and fraternity, they introduced a new attitude to the Jews of the world, known to us as the emancipation of the Jews, from being second-class citizens to being welcomed into greater society. Slowly, one country after another, granted equality to the Jews. The Jews were permitted to leave the ghettos, to be citizens, to serve in the army, to own land, engage in commerce. Quotas for universities were, were annulled. They were allowed to assimilate and to marry. Now, to us, this sounds obvious, of course. That's the, that's, that's the way Jews live now. But at the time, it was unheard of, it was revolutionary. The Jews, of course, were tantalized by all these new opportunities. But unfortunately, their Judaism and connection to Torah would suffer. This ticked off a century in the 19th century of movements of on one hand, abandoning tradition, abandoning religion, and abandoning faith, and counter-movements to strengthen religion and to reinforce tradition as it was. Perhaps the saddest trend of the 19th century is the trend and the movement to convert to Christianity. During the 19th century, approximately a quarter million Jews converted to Christianity. Those people, of course, felt that they weren't truly accepted into great society until they dropped their Judaism entirely. It's one of the great ironies in history, perhaps, that when they do not allow us to observe Judaism freely, they persecute us, well, then we stay steadfastly committed and we cling to our religion. But when all the doors to greater society are open to us, we're allowed to be Jews, you're allowed to be Jewish and to be citizens, then, unfortunately, there's a tendency to assimilate and abandon Judaism. When Jacob re-encountered Esav, he prayed to God, Save me, O God, from my brother and from Esav. The relationship that we have with the non-Jews, the dangers are twofold. They could be our brother, they could love us, embrace us, allow us to be Jews, and that has within it a danger of assimilation. And of course, the danger of Esav, the evil, wants to slaughter and torment us, that of course is ever-present. Some very famous converts that we may have heard of, uh, Benjamin Disraeli, he converted at the age of six, even though his father was a leader in the Jewish community, he grew disenchanted with the Jewish community, and he uh, converted to uh, Christianity, and he would go on to become the Prime Minister of, of, of Britain. Even though the Jews were allowed to become citizens, they weren't allowed to become members of parliament till uh, 1858, I believe. And, of course, Karl Marx, uh, who would go on to found his own religion, was a converted Jew who converted to Christianity. His religion, of course, has more than a billion worldwide adherents, and that's communism. Another movement was founded at this time known as the Reform Movement. Now, the Reform, its ideological father is Moses Mendelssohn, who was a great philosopher and intellectual, but also someone who was an observant Jew throughout his whole life. Now, he introduced innovations that ultimately led to wide-scale and mass abandoning of observance. Perhaps we could say, in light of previous decisions of the Muranos and, 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 and others, uh, you know, the road to hell is sometimes paved with good intentions. Now, what he did is he uh, translated the Torah into German, encouraged the Jews to abandon their distinctive Yiddish in favor of German. He 
encouraged and personally personified an embracing of German, in German culture and intelligentsia, uh, secular studies, whilst trying to stay true to Torah values, and he encouraged his Torah religionists to do the same. Now, while his intentions may have been noble, there was some element of deviation from Torah, and it spiraled out of control. Now, his own family, even though he was committed to Torah personally in his own observance, four of his six children unfortunately converted to Christianity, and all his grandkids converted to Christianity. And it spawned the reform movement under the leadership of Abraham Geiger. They introduced radical changes to Judaism. Amongst the reforms were, number one, to abolish the use of the Hebrew language in prayer and study, and instead, instead of Hebrew, they had German. They removed all references and all prayers uh, of Zion, of Jerusalem, of land of Israel, of the temple, of, a- of any animal sacrifices. Their motto, their maxim was, Berlin is our Jerusalem, Germany is our Israel. We are proud citizens of Germany, first Jews, a distant second. They renamed their synagogues temples to bolster the rejection of the notion of a temple in Jerusalem. Uh, that's why, indeed, the reform, or the early reform, were virulently anti-Zionism because in their, in their Judaism, it was antithetical. The, it, Judaism meant you know, being a citizen of your homeland. Israel, they rejected. So the notion of going back to Israel, reestablishing a Jewish homeland, to them was, as crazy as it sounded, it was anti-Jewish because their brand of Judaism uh, rejected that. Now, they also opposed the notion of a Jewish identity. So instead of being called Jews, they called themselves Germans of the Mosaic persuasion. And they strove to alter the Jewish prayer service and make it indistinguishable from every church in Germany. So, for example, the rabbis dressed like priests. And finally, even though this was later reversed, the day of rest was moved from Saturday, from Shabbos to Sunday to be in line with the Christians. Other reforms were instituted uh, primarily in a rabbinical reform, rabbinical conference in Brunswick in 1844 to abolish Torah law. So firstly, they abolished mandatory observance of mitzvot, they abolished brismila, circumcision, they abolished observance of Shabbat, they abolished kosher, the laws of kosher. They threw that out the door. Kol Nidre, well, we have the upcoming holiday of Yom Kippur. Kol Nidre was... Uh, was annulled. They no longer said Kol Nidre on Yom Kippur. They permitted intermarriage, provided that the spouse was of monotheistic faith, and they formally rejected many core beliefs of Judaism that the Jews had held prior. In fact, an observer, Rabbi Israel Salanter, who we will meet again, he's going to found one of the counter-movements, the Muslim movement. He commented at the time that the rabbis in Brunswick repudiated the Shulchan Aruch, repudiated Jewish law, there's going to come a time in the not-too-distant future where the non-Jews will re-establish and foist the Shulchan Aruch back upon them. And indeed, 91 years later, in the place where the original reform was founded, the Nuremberg laws went into effect and reversed many of their reforms. Now, the reform movement was very wildly successful in Germany. About 90% of German Jews became reform, and later on it became the, very, the dominant uh, movement in America. In 1855 in Pittsburgh, a convention of reform rabbis came together to clarify and codify in a finalized format what the reforms actually believed. And it's interesting for us to read because it's actually, we have the 
text of their declarations available to us and written in very plain English. Uh, here are some direct quotes. And uh, within these, uh, within these uh, quotes, you could see that there's certain principles of Torah that they are rejecting. We accept as binding only the moral laws of Torah and maintain only such ceremonies as elevate and sanctify our lives, but reject all such as are not adopted to the views and habits of modern civilization. We consider ourselves no longer a nation, but a religious community, and therefore expect neither return to Palestine, nor a sacrificial worship under the sons of Aaron, nor the restoration of any laws concerning the Jewish state. Another quote here. We hold that all such mosaic and rabbinical law as regulate diet, priestly purity, dress, originating ages, and under influence of ideas entirely foreign to our present mental and spiritual state. They fail to impress the modern Jew with the spirit of priestly holiness. Their observance in our days is apt rather to obstruct than to further modern than to further than to further modern spiritual elevation. Essentially what they're saying is that the Torah is archaic and obsolete, and in fact it's an impediment to spiritual development, as crazy as that sounds. We reject ideas as ideas not rooted in Judaism, the beliefs both in bodily resurrection and Gehenna and, uh, and, Gehenna and Eden, hell and paradise, as abodes of everlasting punishment and reward. Thus, many of the Rambam's accepted 13 principles of faith were rejected uh, by the reforms. Now, there were counter-movements to try to reinforce Torah. So we have Jews converting to Christianity. We have the early reform movement, which is repudiating Torah. There were moderns, uh, there were movements that were there to re- reinforce Torah, to uh, be counter-movements to the reform heresy. So firstly, the yeshiva movement that began prior, that grew and strengthened. In the model of Velazhin, hundreds of yeshivas sprouted throughout Europe. The Hasidic movement that began prior really took root in towns and shtetls everywhere. Hundreds of Hasidic movements and dynasties were developed. There were two major, maybe three we could even say, uh, major innovators that developed worldviews and philosophies to combat reform. Amongst those is Rabbi Shamson Rafal Hirsch in Germany and Rabbi Moshe Sofer, known to us as the Hassam Sofer in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. They had different ways, each tailored to the unique makeup of their constituency to combat the reform and the seculars. So the Hassam Sofer, he had a motto, Chadash, Asur Torah. It's a little plan words, which means new things are prohibited by the Torah. This is actually talking with regards to a law, an agricultural law in Israel. But he used it as a as as a ploy to kind of demonstrate his worldview. New themes, anything new, any innovation that is against the Torah. So he essentially um, promulgated the idea that all Jewish customs of yesteryear they're sacrosanct. They're untouchable, they're immutable, we can't change them. New things are, uh, you know, are prohibited. Uh, for example, uh, the reform didn't like the layout of a synagogue. It, it, it looked haphazard, it was a mess. They wanted it to look more like, 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 like a church. Thus, they took the bima, where you read the Torah, and they moved it to the front. He said, no, a shul is not a good shul, because this is the way it was always done. The, the bima is in the middle, not in the front. Uh, weddings. Weddings were began to take place inside the sanctuaries like they were done in churches. He said, no, if you want to have a wedding in a synagogue, it's got to be outside, not inside the shul. Uh, interestingly, this was surprising to me when I read this, he revived a custom of women shaving their heads. 
Now, where does that custom even come from? It came from a time where women were frequently kidnapped and raped by the non-Jews. There were times in history where uh, there was anarchy, especially with regards to the Jewish Jewish women. So if a Jewish woman had nice, long, beautiful hair, she was a, uh, you know, she was a prime target for someone who wanted to kidnap and, God forbid, do terrible things to them. So there developed a tradition to combat that, to have the women shave their head. And women with a shaved head, most people find that a little bit less attractive. Now, what Rabbi Sofer did, he said, well, that's a tradition. And we can change traditions, even though that the threat of kidnapping and rape, that had gone away, but he reinvoked that tradition because of the tendency that was being developed of women not covering their hair. Well, if the woman has a shaved head, she ain't walking out with a cover, with an uncovered head. So whether you like the tactic or not, but that kind of really uh, sheds light and opens a window onto the methodology that he employed to combat the developing reform movement. Now in Germany, Rav Hurt had an entirely different approach. His, the name of his approach was called Torah im Derecheretz, synthesizing Torah with modernity. So he himself went to university. He was a member of parliament. He was a great orator and lecturer and writer and prodigious scholar of every field imaginable. And he would engage in debate and polemics with 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 reform, you know. And and he was a, you know, he was a, a tremendous advocate for tradition in a, with eloquence and with clarity, with incisive logic. And he helped a, a small group, albeit a small group of German Jews, maintain their commitment to Torah under his helm. So, for example, he had an innovation of teaching Torah to women. To us, of course, that's self-understood. At that time, it was unheard of to formally teach Torah to women. But he recognized that it's a new world, a new world with new kinds of threats to Jewish continuity. And while a tradition may have been appropriate in the past, now we have to do everything we can to combat the new threat. Now, in Lithuania, yet a third movement was founded in the 19th century. That's called the Musser movement. It was founded by Rabbi Israel Lipkin, Rabbi Israel Salanter, who we mentioned prior, with his comment uh, in response to the convention in Brunswick. He was a titanic intellect and thinker. Uh, he was a, a scholar and genius of unimaginable greatness. And for example, he discovered, and he writes in his books, he talks about the unconscious, the idea of an unconscious mind that was later popularized by Freud, but he wrote it 60 years prior. Of course, he came, with that, he came up with the idea of Musar, and the Musar is kind of teaching, is espousing that people can build an internal world, to become great, to engage in character perfection, to have character self-awareness, to engage in ethical refinement, to become a great person, to build an eternal world and to reach lofty greatness as a Musser teacher. He recognized that everyone feels this, and this is not limited to Jews or to people of that time, that they have unused potential. The Musser the Musa theory is how to uncover someone's greatness and bring it to the surface. Now, of course, as we know, Jews are resistant to change, what he would do is he would go to, from town to town and talk about Musser. But instead of coming and talking about Musser, he would come as the scholar to talk about Torah in a way that was in line with the dominant positions of the community. And he would give a fiery Torah lecture and display his, his tremendous grasp of Torah. 
And at the end, you would have a fiery musr shmuz. It said we have to we have to do musr, we have to do character analysis and perfection and development and refinement. We have to study the works of Mesil Hashem. Mesil Hashem became, of course, the primary book of the movement. We have to build houses of musr, bases, what's known as the base on musr, and get together to work on ourselves, to study and to, to reflect internally and become great people. Now, in a certain sense, that movement failed because the demands of Musser on the average person uh, was a little bit too great. But Musser succeeded in integrating with the yeshiva movement and thus the two movements together with a dash of what we know as brisker lumdis, which is the deep analysis of Talmud, in a genius way, those came together and united to respond and withstand the tremendous assaults of secularism and socialism and what's known as Haskalah, Jewish Enlightenment, that, impa- that in- imperiled its development. The last movement of the 19th century is Zionism. Zionism, of course, is founded by Theodor Herzl. Uh, he is an assimilated Jew from Vienna. He himself doesn't read Hebrew. He's a real product of the time. He was circumcised, he had a bar mitzvah, but his, own, his only son, Hans, he gave neither. He was not circumcised, nor did he have a bar mitzvah, and there's even doubts as to whether or not his wife, Julie, was even Jewish. Now, he was a, a, a journalist from a very aristocratic background, and he was very bothered by the Jewish problem, the problem that even though Jews are allowed back into society, they're not really fully integrated into the world. What to do about them? And to give a sense of his perspective on the matter, in 1890, he advocated mass conversion to Christianity as the only solution. Uh, it really shows what kind of background this transformative Jewish leader really had. Now, he was a journalist in Austria, and he went to France to cover the Dreyfus trial. The Dreyfus trials where, Al- where, where Alfred Dreyfus was a Jewish captain, and he was accused wrongly of selling secrets to Germans, and there was fabricated and forged evidence, and was really despicable how, in the country that began the emancipation a hundred years prior, where Napoleon had freed the Jews from the bondages of their ghettos, where reform and progress had made such inroads, there specifically he encountered such virulent anti Semitism. And he was motivated and mobilized to, div- to do something about that. And he came to the conclusion that the only solution was the Jews had to have autonomy, self-governance, and their own homeland. He wrote a book called Der Judenstaat, The Jewish State. He went around the world and f- fired up and galvanized Jewish communities. In 1897 in Basel, they had a convention. That con- they convened the first Jewish, Zionist Jewish Congress. After the Congress was over, Herzl declared triumphantly, today I founded the Jewish state. I don't know if it's going to be established in five years or in 50 years, but we did it. And indeed, those words were almost prophetic. 51 years later, the Jewish state was founded. Now, the Zionists, they really fell into two camps. On one hand, you had the Herzl Zionists, the more sophisticated, aristocratic Western Europeans that were philosophically inclined to the notion of a Jewish state based upon humanistic reasons. Uh, Herzl wanted German to be the official language. The notion of going back to Palestine and Israel, that was an afterthought, in fact. 
Herzl had flirtations when the world governments wanted to offer him what's now modern-day Kenya, what was then called Uganda, a, a plot of land in, in Africa. He says, oh, we have a solution. To him, Israel, you know, that was nice if you could get it. Uh, that was his camp. On the other side, we have the traditional Jews, the Jews that have been praying and pining for going back to Israel and reestablishing a Jewish homeland, where we were, you know, the place where we had previously had two commonwealths and were kicked out, and we've been praying and hoping and yearning to go back there. And the Jews that looked at Zionism in, in a messianic light almost. And what's interesting is that these two very, very different groups of Jews came together to create the political entity of. Uh, of Zionism that would ultimately contribute in a great way towards the founding of the state of, of, of Israel. And of course, between them, you have the Reformed Jews who were tremendously anti-Zionism and a lot of the very religious Jews that couldn't imagine in their wildest dreams that a savior that would bring the Jews back to Judaism and back to Torah and back to Israel would look anything like Theodore Herzl. Now, the movement began, Herzl himself had a tragic epilogue. He died in 1905, impoverished. He had spent his vast fortune on developing and furthering Zionism. He died at the age of 44, very young. Uh, his daughter Pauline committed suicide in 1930. His son Hans converted to Christianity. He returned to Judaism. He too committed suicide. Uh, his uh, other... His daughter, uh, Hans's daughter, uh, died in one of the do- his daughter died in the camps, and his son, the only grandchild of Theodor Herzl, committed suicide in 1946. Herzl really holds a very special place in Jewish history because he almost single-handedly, at least initially, really pushed the idea of political Zionism to the forefront of the Jewish world. Now. To be clear, it was not the first. He, he didn't develop the notion of Zionism. In fact, in 1825, 70 years prior, there was a movement to establish a Jewish state in the Grand Island, which is near uh, Niagara Falls. As crazy as that sounds, a very small island that connects Buffalo to Niagara Falls. There was a movement to build a Jewish homeland there, as bizarre as that sounds today. But the point is, is that the idea of political Zionism was in the Jewish stratosphere, but it was very theoretical until the arrival of Herzl. Now, in 1914, a war began that would shape the foundations of Jewish communities worldwide. Of course, that's World War I. It's striking that the, that the war was declared on the ninth day of the Hebrew month of Av, the day that is designated and assigned for tragedy and mourning in the Jewish life. Jews in Poland, Jews in White Russia were uprooted. Communities that had been standing for hundreds of years fell overnight. Wealthy people had all their money taken away. Institutions were disrupted. It was a terrible calamity to the Jewish community and really to the world at large. There's nothing really positive came out of it. It was a stalemate and it created the, the groundwork for an even worse world war 20 years later that would go to surpass it in every way imaginable. But there were some very important changes that happened to Jewish life uh, as a result of World War I. So firstly, the British mandate over Palestine. Previously, for the past 400 years, the Ottoman Empire was in control of Palestine. They were disbanded, and England became the masters, the imperial 
the imperial Britain became masters over Palestine. In 1917, the famous Balfour Declaration, a very significant event where the official position of the government of Britain became that we're looking towards establishing a Jewish homeland in Palestine. Of course, that was just the beginnings uh, of a long process, but that was a very significant point in the development. Another development of World War I was the Bolshevik communism in Russia. Uh, Russian communities and Russian communists were Jewish primarily. Russian communists were primarily Jewish, and the Jews were caught in between the war, uh, between the Reds, the communists, the Bolsheviks on one side, and the whites, the imperialists uh, on the other side, and many, many Jews, unfortunately, were slaughtered in between these two uh, these two warring entities. The estimation is that between 75 and 100,000 Jews were slaughtered in that war. Now, the communists, and even especially the Jewish communists, were ruthless in stamping out any form of religious activity amongst the fellow Jews. They killed rabbis, they closed yeshivas, the synagogues, they banned religious practices, and under communism there was only one religion, a religion founded by a Jew, founded by Marx, but it allowed no other religion. If someone wanted to remain Jews, Jewish, they had to live underground. The Jews were not allowed to circumcise and pain of death, not allowed to observe Shabbos, not allowed to teach Torah, and a tremendous devastation that Russian Jewry and world Jewry is indeed suffering until this day. Now, and in between the two wars, there was significant amounts of uh, immigration and emigration out of Europe and into the United States and Israel. Now, these, these trends, these aliyah trends and immigration trends, really started in the end of the 19th century, where in the 1880s, the relocations of masses amounts of Jews to Israel and to the United States really began. We know the stories of Ellis Island, where Jews are welcomed into New York, and the numbers essentially show that in 1880, there's about 80,000 Jews in New York City. In 1910, the number is 1.1 million. Tremendous influx of Jewish immigrants that came to the United States. Now, in America, they found no religious infrastructure. There's no shuls, no schools, no yeshivas, really no nothing. Not only that, uh, observance of Torah was very difficult. Remember, Shabbos at that time was a regular workday. There's no Jewish schools, no synagogues, really very difficult uh, to stop the tide of assimilation and into marriage. And, of course, during that time, we have the first aliyah of Jews to Israel, about 25,000 that came in the 1880s to Israel, and they found a country uninhabited and almost uninhabitable. There's a great letter that Mark Twain wrote where he actually traveled to Israel and he finds the place barren and desolate. And they began the process of, of trying to rebuild and laying the groundwork. And we look at this very interestingly as... You know, the mighty manipulating history, being aware that Europe is not going to be forever a safe haven for Jews and starting the process of establishing Jewish communities elsewhere. In the 1920s, there was another tremendous influx of immigrants to the United States uh, and to Israel. But unfortunately, at the end of the 1920s, there were very harsh quotas of immigration uh, placed upon Jews uh, from, the United States, uh, from the United States and from British Mandate in Palestine, and a lot of the Jews were trapped in Europe that was heading towards Inferno. In 1933, Adolf Hitler 
was elected chancellor of Germany. He was a rabid anti-Semite who blamed all the misfortunes, and primarily the misfortunes of World War I and the ensuing economic depression that hit Germany on the Jews, despite the Jews being a tiny fraction of the population. Once again, we see that in the anti-Semites' world, logic doesn't necessarily play a part. To logically claim that the Jews, who are, who are part of German aristocracy in every way, the scientists and the mathematicians and the physicians and the lawyers, the people that are contributing positively to the development of the country and the society, those are the people that are responsible for the downfall, as crazy as that sounds. He used to use the term Jew and Bolshevik interchangeably, and he vowed to destroy both. Right away, he enacted anti-Jewish legislation in Germany. Number one, he restricted the number of Jewish students in German schools and universities. He excluded Jews from organizations, professions, and other aspects of communal public life. My paternal great-grandfather, uh, he was a great German patriot and intellectual. He was relieved of his professorship. Luminaries such as Albert Einstein and Sigmund Freud had to flee. Jews were not given any protection from the police. Jewish shops were looted. Jewish homes were destroyed. Jews were deprived of most political rights, weren't allowed to hold public office, weren't allowed to treat non-Jews, Jewish doctors, weren't allowed to treat non-Jews. Essentially, all licenses of of Jewish lawyers were revoked and weren't allowed to practice law. And of course, we're very familiar with the Nuremberg Laws of 1935, which excluded German Jews from Reich citizenship and prohibited them with having sexual relations or marriages to uh, ethnic Germans that he called Aryans. In 1939, the worst war the world has ever seen was started by the Germans. Now, what was the purpose? What were the aims of this war? Of this war? So there's a great book. I advise everyone to read it. Uh, it's called The War Against the Jews. And the theme of the book is that the war, the purpose of the war, was the extermination of the Jews. Now, there's actually a lot of evidence to support that. So, at least four times the author, Lucy Davidowitz, documents that Hitler references the speech announcing the beginning of the war and the intention to engage in war as his reason for the Holocaust. Even though in that particular speech, he doesn't mention the Jews or his intention to destroy the Jews. Clearly, Hitler himself viewed this war as a war against the Jews. Now, according to the eminent historian, Paul Johnson, who wrote a great single-volume work on Jewish history called The History of the Jews, he writes that the reason why Hitler essentially uh, stymied and torpedoed and cannibalized his war effort by attacking the Russians and opening up an Eastern Front that would ultimately be his undoing, there's really only one reason to do that. Hitler had everything he wanted. He had the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact of non-aggression on his eastern flank, and all he had was to fight uh, what was left of the French resistance and the British on his western flank. For an inexplicable reason, he decided to attack with Operation Barbarossa on June 22nd of 1941 to attack the Russians. Why did he do that? It doesn't make any sense. It's totally illogical if there's any military aims behind it. Says Paul Johnson, the only reason why he did that, because there were five million Jews behind the quote-unquote Iron Curtain, living in Soviet 
Russia that he wanted to, to get and to kill. During critical points in the war, Hitler refused to reallocate resources away from the genocide efforts of the final solution, even if it guaranteed him military defeat. These points of, of, of evidence do support the notion that the goal that Hitler had set out was genocide and war was the excuse to do that. Now, the persecution and the genocide on scales never seen before was carried out in stages and ultimately was culminated in what the Nazis called the final solution of the Jewish problem, the Jewish question, an agenda to exterminate the Jews in Europe. As Germany conquered more and more of Europe as they dug into white Russia, they subjugated the Jews under the domain to a series of systematic steps that they perfected with German efficiency over time. The first things they do, they demanded the Jews wear identifying mark, typically uh, a yellow badge. The next step was concentration of Jews into ghettos so they could kind of keep, they could monitor them. And then they employed special paramilitary units called the Einsatzgruppen, who murdered millions of Jews, oftentimes initially in mass shootings. The Germans were disappointed with the inefficiency and the expense of killing Jews one at a time with bullets. And instead they developed industrial and systematic machineries of death to kill Jews by the masses, primarily by gassing, but also by execution and extreme work conditions and starvation that killed many, many millions. And by the end of 1942, victims were being transported in freight trains to networks of extermination camps all across Europe. If the Jews survived the journey, many of them didn't. They were either put to back-breaking, brutal labor to help the Germans in the war effort, and once they were not, uh, they were not of any use to them, they put them in uh, bathhouses uh, and a finely tuned gas called Zyklon B. It's a, it's a, li- it's a gas form uh, of, of cyanide, and they would kill uh, the masses uh, right away. They take the dead bodies, they burn them, and they keep on churning. At its peak, Auschwitz, the most infamous of these camps, was gassing tens of thousands of Jews a day, and this continued until the end of World War II. In 1945, in the Nuremberg trials for German war criminals, the estimated number of murdered Jews was put at 5.7 million, a number that has remarkably stood, at least within a certain range, uh, as accurate over time. Today, the accepted number of Jews is somewhat higher, between 5.9 and as high as 7 million Jews. European Jewry was destroyed. Wh- whoever was left was left without a home, without a family, without a community, without an identity. Broken uh, survivors tried to piece their life together and collectively as a whole, as we always do. When a tragedy of such proportion hits us, we try the effort right away to rebuild. The political Zionistic movement really reached its peak uh, after the war. In 1947, the newly found, newly formed United Nations proposed a partition plan for two states in Palestine, a Jewish state and an Arab state. The Jews agreed, the Arabs rejected it. In 1948, the British mandate, they unilaterally withdrew from Palestine, and immediately the Jewish nation of Israel was declared, and when they declared 
their independence, immediately five Arab nation, nations declared war on Israel. That became known as Israel's War of Independence. Now, during the War of Independence, uh, a young assistant of Ben-Gurion by the name of Shimon Peres was in charge of purchasing weapons for the Israeli military. He was the head of the Navy, briefly, and he established the country's nascent aircraft industry. And in the 1950s, he founded the country's nuclear program, which until this day, of course, remains shrouded in secrecy. And he would often call it Israel's textile industry. He would broker arms deals with rogue nations, rogue individuals, whomever he could find. Uh, and he circumvented embargoes, very clever, very creative ruses that he put in place. He said, I want to buy warplanes because we need it you know, to, to, for films. We want to make films. And they would refashion them into warplanes. He found rusty tanks left over from the war uh, that uh, places of people that... Uh, of countries that they didn't need it. He was a great bargainer. He would shame rich countries. He says, you want to charge full price for the, this tiny Jewish state? And, of course, he passed away yesterday, and he, will, he was one of the great founding fathers of Israel, and may he rest in peace. After a long and grueling war, an armistice was agreed, and the process of building a new nation and homeland began. I look at this time as a time of unity, of unification, of consolidation of many different kinds of Jews. Jews, we love to fight. We love to develop our own little movements and our own labels and cast other people as being different, as being suspect. I look at the founding of the State of Israel and the various compromises that were put into place to ensure that a civil war doesn't develop in Israel and a unified Israel for all Jews to be established as being the beginning of what hopefully will be a continuing trend of consolidation of the Jews. So, for example, Ben-Gurion got together with the rabbis and said, okay, let's, let's, let, let, let's make agreements. We have a secular, social, political elite. We have leftovers of the previous aliyahs. We have Jews that have been there since the 1700s. We have survivors from all different backgrounds coming. It's a very diverse group. He got together and he made compromises. He struck deals. So for example, he allowed the religious community to have their own religious schools, kosher observance by the government's all government properties and uh, and programs have to have kosher food. The army holds kosher food. Uh, he gave uh, the regulation of personal state status like who's a Jew, who's a not Jew, conversion, marriage, divorce, etc., to the rabbinate. He made Shabbos an official day of rest uh, for Israel. And, of course, he gave army deferments for Torah scholars. And like that, the industrial and religious world began to flourish in Israel. At its founding, the country was home to 600,000 Jews. Now, a mere less than 70 years later, there's more than 6 million Jews who reconverged back in Israel. Now, the rest of the Jewish communities, uh, what was left, most of them moved to the United States, where a burgeoning Torah world also took root at that time. So, what's the bottom line here? We look at the Holocaust, and it's, it's a tragedy and a genocide of the worst in history. And it's, in a sense, similar to the destruction of the Second Temple, where all the hopes and all the dreams all came crashing down. All the warring groups, all the different movements. You know, Hitler didn't care if you were a Zionist, or you were reform, or you were conservative, or even intermarried, or even converted. He didn't care. 
He put us all in the same train together, the wealthy and the poor, the educated, the uneducated, the Polish, the German, the Russian, the Ukrainian, the Hungarian, the Lithuanian, it doesn't matter. We're all Jews, and he essentially taught us a good lesson of, about Jewish unity. Uh, it's a very bad way to learn the lesson, but there's still a positive spin on that that we can, we can derive. After you know, that tremendous uh, devastation and tragedy, a lot of us have a tendency to go back to the wars of the past, to once again re, you know, cling to our own communities and say, well, I'm this kind of Jew, you're that kind of Jew, we're different. Those days brought us tremendous tragedy and strife. We're a Jewish nation. We're unified under the banner of Torah. We have a universalistic vision. We've been around for a very long time. We have a mission that we have to do. We're back in Israel. Torah communities are flourishing, and we have to realize that creating division is going to lead to more of the same. Now, to say that we're finished, to say that we have the finalized product, to say that we reached the top of the mountain, you know, we have Tikkun Olam, that's something that's a stretch by anyone's estimation. Of course, there's many wars. There's the Sinai War of 56 that Israel had to battle. The uh, existential war of the Six-Day War in 67, the Yom Kippur War in 73, the First Lebanon War, the Intifadas, the First Intifada, the Second Intifada, the Third Intifada, uh, a lot of things, you know, leaving Lebanon, leaving Gaza, the Second Gaza War, the first, a lot of stuff that we still have. But what's the big trend? The big trend is we're, we're back in Israel, we're unified, more or less. We're in the United States, we're unified, maybe a little bit less. We still have a lot of issues, there's assimilation, there's abandoning of Torah, but we have to realize, where did that bring us to? We, we have history. We just went through all of history. We, looked at, we, know, we know the story. We know where it brings. We know where it ends. But the Torah spells it out. We read last week in the Torah. You abandon Torah. You try to create strife amongst the people. We know where it ends, and we've, we've, we witness it. We've witnessed it again and again. Now it's time for consolidation. And I think the trend is leaning that way. We talked about the early reform, right? The early reform is very much anti-Torah. If you look, in 1937, there was a Columbus platform where they re-embraced uh, Zionism. In 1999, there was an updated Pittsburgh platform that re-embraced Torah. The, the trend, the major trend is that all these movements are really consolidating together and coming back to Torah. Of course, some Jews are observant, some Jews are less observant, some Jews are scholarly, some Jews are less scholarly. We have to realize we shouldn't create divisions for ourselves. It's okay for someone to say, I'm not quite there. I'm not the Jew I want to be. But for someone to say that I am a different kind of Jew, I'm a Jew that doesn't believe this, that brought us into a lot of the tragedy that we spoke about today. Now, in early Israel, the notion of a secularist panacea was very, a secularist and a social panacea was, was prominent. But a small, nascent Torah community really took over. Um, and today, millions of Israelis are observant to Torah law. A third of the Knesset is Shomer Shabbos. When you watch the Prime Minister address the nation uh, to eulogize Peres, you look at the, at the bookshelf behind you, you see a Talmud, you see a Shulchan Aruch. We're coming back to Torah. We have the largest yeshivas that we've ever had. And I think if you squint, if you look really hard, you can make somewhat of a framework of Messiah. You could see maybe how it could potentially happen. If I told you 200 years ago that there's 6 million Jews living in Israel in 200 years, you would say it's not possible. And in fact, you would doubt 
whether or not there be 60,000 Jews living in Israel. And now we're there, we're on the doorstep. And we can see how, we don't know how it's going to happen, but we know what our job is to stay true to what our mission has always been and has, you know, began with Abraham and Torah and God and, it's, and, and, and teaching the world. It's now seemingly converging back to those themes. And we can imagine, we can imagine in our lifetimes the notion of a rebuilt temple on Temple Mount, a Jewish and halachic government, and indeed the finishing touches on the Abrahamic destiny of Tikkun Olam could potentially be in our lifetimes, and we hope that may it come speedily in our days.